Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts. Patrick Green. And Peter from the Midwest. Welcome to the show, everyone. It's been a bit. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great. I have to say, hearing you say Shoulder of Orion again at the intro was, uh, gave me a little chill there, Jamie. It's been it's been a long time. It's been it like, has. like a month and a half. I had to like... Give myself like a, a mental note. Okay, shoulder of Orion, as opposed to the, you know, perfect organism. I kind of wish you guys would pump in the uh, the theme music while you started here. It'd be good. <laughs> that would be good. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while since we've been back. Uh, well, since we've been back. Yeah, since we've been back. Um, we've taken a, about a month off or so to attend to uh, Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. During Alien Day, we had a lot of content for that, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners were able to take part of it was a really great time a lot of work but not that stressful we got it all done a really great week um a lot of great participation and just yeah just uh an all-around fun time and but it's good to be back in the saddle for shoulder of orion uh we have a lot in store yeah we got a lot to catch up on we got a lot to look forward to we have a lot of things to to close loops on from our previous visions of the future episode i'm really excited to revisit that conversation today with a more specific focus but also to recognize that we are in the 40th year anniversary of blade runners release and that uh you know we were kind of game planning some really cool ideas before we started recording around that and i think probably in the next you know within the next couple of episodes we'll start teasing some of the, our plans for it but, um, you know, this year is significant because two of our absolute favorite movies are celebrating important milestones, right? You have Alien 3's 30th anniversary, which we're celebrating a shit ton of Perfect Organism. But we also have 40, 40 years of Blade Runner, which is a huge deal in and of itself. And so we're going to be in the kind of second half of the year really uh, dedicating some, some serious airtime to that, which I'm excited for. Me too. So speaking of our previous episode, right, Visions of the Future, we kind of dedicated that one to talking about examples of futurism as they appeared in especially movies, but other works of fiction that meant a lot to us, right? We talked about things like Metropolis and Brave New World and all these different, you know, examples of what futures could look like in film and why they speak to us. But we kind of held off a little bit on Blade Runner because obviously that's what people would be expecting us to talk about. So we want to revisit it tonight with more of an angle on that. But before we even get to Blade Runner specifically, you know, futurism or or futurists or futuristic writing is important for very specific reasons, right? The reasons why we have visions of the future are evergreen. There's a reason why we keep coming back to this theme of what does tomorrow look like? So we thought tonight would be a cool opportunity to talk about that, to talk about why this is an important thing to visit um, and to talk about why perhaps so many you know great works of art keep getting pulled inexorably back to that idea of what comes down the road for us and uh, and what perhaps should we be you know watching for. So uh, yeah, that's that's kind of a little bit of a window, I think, into where we're going tonight. What do you think, Jamie? Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I, I think what's in the current zeitgeist in terms of where people see us as a world society he heading 
what film keeps popping up? Well, there's two films, Blade Runner and Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049. Um, so I feel like it's really relevant, certainly, of course, in the 40th year, to circle back and talk about that future, um, which is now con concurrent in some ways. 2049 took it ahead again. So we have, there are more questions in front of us. Um, but yeah, I, I think really going back to why this future, why the future of Blade Runner, which is hard to kind of say the future of Blade Runner because it's not a future anymore, but it is a future because the sequel is but it, further. But it's you technically know. our past now, which is really strange yeah. to think about. Yeah. Yeah. But is it, why is it relevant? Um, and what made it relevant? What made it uh, prescient in the, when it was released? And why is it prescient now? Um, and I think a lot of, at least in my opinion, it's prescient now because we're just, we're seeing signs in some ways of um, e not economic collapse. Yes, maybe a little bit of that too, but um, it's kind of the natural world disrupting itself because of our meddling with it. And that really influenced Blade Runner as an aesthetic as a cultural aesthetic in the world that they created for the 1982 film. I think that's exactly a good point. I think kind of tying it into some of the um, ideas from the last episode too, it's, it's sort of the futurist way of looking is typically to try and, you know, predict ways, um, ways that the future will be different, ways that it will be the same, help us as a, as a society prepare ourselves for that, either in ways to correct our actions now to avoid a future, or oftentimes how we can prepare ourselves to adapt to an inevitable future. And I think, you know, a lot of what Jamie, you were saying, it makes sense with that. I think we've, we, we see that there's some inevitable things that I don't think are reversible, I'm not someone who's going to say, you know, we should just give up on on climate change and things like that and throw our hat in. But there's definitely some things that are probably irreversible at this point. We're going to have to get ready for um, increase in temperatures, increase in in you know droughts or severe weather, flooding, things like that. Um, but then I think at the same time, you know, there's futures um, that we need to um, change our behavior to avoid, and that could be things like you know things that we saw in, in you know, during the pandemic, the, the, the summers, the riots, the, the treatment of people and seeing how, you know, there are still these, these vast divides between society and, and people. And I'm kind of hitting a lot of things here, but that's sort of the general overview, I think, of how we can approach this and, and see how Blade Runner, um, you know, in the futures that it presents, are they, are they extra fantastical to where they're unbelievable? I don't think so. I think a lot of the things are actually pretty relevant and it could be a lot of what we're headed for. So I, I think I'm, I'm excited to talk with you guys about how, you know, what themes we think are the most important and how they relate today. And I guess to kind of pull it back before we get into Blade Runner in particular, you know, future, so we're talking about futurism as a, as like a, a future studies thing, right? Futurism can be an aesthetic. There's, there's Futurismo, which is the Italian school of, you know, modern future looking art. There's there's futurism as like a literary aesthetic. There's futurists like people like Ray Kurzweil, right, who study the future, or you know people like um, uh, who's my man with his domes? What is his name? Why can't I think of his name? Buckminster Fuller. Fucking love Buckminster Fuller, right? People who study what the future can look like. 
And then you have futurism as this idea of, you know, science fiction, almost always, giving us an opportunity to look at ourselves and our future in a way that is uh, speculative. I didn't think I was going to get that word either, but it was it was sitting in there. So it's a, it's a speculative look at our future, right? What it could look like potentially. So I guess a question that I'd like to to toss up to either of you is, like, why is science fiction an important way to look at ourselves? What's what's special? Why do we keep coming back to it as a, as a form? I'll answer that first. I usually say I'm an expert on nothing. I am no scientist. I will never be a scientist. I just I live my life with my heart and with my feelings, but I feel like as a species of humanity, we are genetically connected. I feel like our we our genetic memories are in our bodies. I think it's why we can feel certain things at certain times um, in certain areas that we go to. We feel certain connections about certain areas. Maybe we've never been because I think we're all connected. And I think to loop that back to science fiction, I I've said this before on shows, certainly in 2020, when we were doing our regular weekly roundtables. Uh, I think they were called, what were they called? Interlinked. Yes. That's Interlinked, yeah. Those, those um, were fun. Those, they was, those, those were like fun. a long time ago, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Those, it feels like five years ago to me. <laughs> but I feel like science fiction authors, directors, um, people who kind of live their life creatively predicting the future in their stories. Um, people like Sid Mead in, in their drawings. What is it going to look like? But I think for me, the reality of it and why science fiction to me is so powerful is because these people aren't just telling a story, they're prophets. And I think because we're all connected in this earth, and I don't want to make this like hippy-dippy, like kind of crazy, like, you know, whatever, new agey but i really believe like we are all connected people we all share the same dna structure i mean we might come from different ethnic backgrounds or um different places on the continent but we're all part of the same species so of course we're connected we all share the same earth so of course we're connected and i think back to now this is more like uh what do you call science fiction that's based in like, for instance, um, 28 days or all the zombies, those are kind of science fiction, but they're science, they're not science fiction, but they're a different type. What are those called? Post-apocalyptic. Yeah. But, but when, when there's science fiction that deals with like viruses and, um, that kind of a thing where it's maybe set in the future, that's called something specific though. Like, I, I don't know what it's called, but I remember before COVID, there was a big thing, a big series on Netflix about viruses and are we prepared and they're going through just the history of viruses. I think it's a six part series, very long, very in depth, incredible. And at the end of the series, they said, something's coming, something's coming. And then you have um, that movie by Steven Soderbergh called Contagion, speculative fiction, I think that's what you would call it. Um, almost speculative science fiction. So you have Contagion, which was released in 2014, 2013, I can't remember when. And all of, so much of Contagion, which ended up being true. I mean, beat for beat, the, the virus was of course very different. It, our virus was lethal, but not as lethal, lethal as the one in you know, in the movie, but 
that story and the people who came up with that story were they were they were pro prophesying in some way that something is coming something is on its way and we you, they could feel it they didn't know for sure and then all of a sudden boom 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 almost 100 years to the year we get a an outbreak uh you know a pandemic that's you know all over the world and i feel like th the speculative fiction writers or whatever were telling us that this was coming over and over something's coming are we prepared are we prepared and humans tend to be like the grasshoppers like oh we'll deal with that tomorrow we'll deal with that tomorrow we have other things we have other distractions in front of us right now and then um it gets too late and here we are and i feel like in terms of certainly blade runner you have people like philip k dick telling us in the in the late in the early 80s before his death this is a warning this is a warning to humanity i hope it's not true this isn't something i'm writing just to celebrate i'm writing this because i'm afraid i'm afraid that this is where we're heading children of men we've talked about this on our show before as well um where there's you know the birth rate has essentially plummeted and women aren't having babies anymore what's actually going on in the world right now birth rates are plummeting all over the world. Some of that has, is due to, you know, the younger generation, the millennials, the Z, the Gen Zs feeling like we can't afford children. We can't even, we can barely afford our rent. So we're not going to have children, but also it's just harder for people to have to get to conceive children. It's just, it's, it's a science fact right now. And years ago we have movies and stories saying this might be something. And I feel like part of that is because we know our future in some ways and it's cyclical these things come back and i think science fiction ends up being really important because we have to pay attention to it we have to pay attention to what those writers are saying we have to pay attention to well the earth is going to get too hot so we can't live in these places or the sea the sea level is going to rise so we're going to need to build a seawall to keep the seawall out what's happening right now you know, snow caps are, you know, the ice is melting in Antarctica and the sea is rising. And you hear reports every year that it keeps rising and what are they going to do? And it was pouring rain in New York City last summer in the subway, places you'd never see being flooded by torrential rain because science is saying things are going crazy. But we've had these scientists and science fiction prophets telling us we have to be careful and I, I i will continue to circle back around what they're telling us in these stories because i don't think any of it should be surprising but then when we get there it is so i feel like blade runner um becomes more important every year because it's a story we could have it's a story we could have sidestepped but instead we embraced I, hope yeah, I, I think a, a lot of what what you're saying rings rings true with me as well. I think I think there's a couple different ways to to look at it. it just futurism and the importance of science fiction in general in that sort of I guess general scope. One would be, you know, sometimes it's just easier as a science fiction writer to write about a a something set in the future. Um, as sort of, I don't know, what would you say, a, a passive aggressive way of telling the present to change your ways mm -hmm. without having to actually look to your, you know, your left or right and say, hey, knock it off, guys. It's more of a, hey, look, if we don't change our behavior, everyone, this is what could happen and probably is going to happen. 
Um, so I think in, in one device, it's, it's sort of a, a way for writers to comment without becoming a, a target or without becoming too much of a, a black mark on maybe, you know, the times that they're actually living in and a way to escape the times they're living in and report on a, a, a future that, of course, is based more on present day events. Um, but then in general, just the story, I, I think a lot of it goes to, again, my favorite topic always is time, scarcity of time. And I think one way is for, um, and this is getting outside of, you know, I think futurists in general, and we can talk more about that. I think it, it's an important thing. I think it goes beyond just the, hey, if I had invented post-it notes, I'd be rich. Um, I think it, it does help society to have people who are trying to figure out ways that our future may may be and, and how to either prevent or how to adapt again, like I said. But I think in general, um, as a storytelling device, it, it's just a nice, it's, it's a way that we can, um, again, deal with the presence, I think is a way that I like to think of it as, you know, if, if I'm having a, a difficult time dealing with the fact that I'm going to die, that the people I care about are going to die, and that someday, you know, children may die and you go down that dark path, sometimes it's helpful to maybe predict or otherwise speculate, you know, using Jamie's language about, well, what it's, what's it going to look like when I'm gone? And how are my either children or people I love, what's the world that they're going to be living in look like? And that can help you, I think, deal with the presence in a lot of ways in that it helps to know. And I'm, I'm rambling a bit here, but I, th I think, again, it helps us deal with the unknown to make a guess of what it's going to look like later when we're not here anymore. And I think, again, that's, that's one thing I think Braid Runner does a really good job of, of doing, and we can get into those reasons. I guess, as we continue. Something, this is addressing eventually something that both of you are getting at, but something that I'm struck by, we actually were just talking about this on Just Wing It, my, my other other podcast um, last week, how in the beginning, in the early days of the pandemic, there was this explosion in pandemic-related storytelling. Like there were all of these, you know, movies about people being locked down and things about romances happening over Zoom, you know, meet cutes over Skype. Um, and, you know, all of these, you know, the, the Soderbergh film was, everybody was talking about that again, and everybody was, you know, resharing Michael Crichton novels and all these other ways to, like, look at how we should have seen this coming, right? And then after, like, three months of that, it just stopped. Like, it just doesn't, for some reason, for some reason we all just decided, okay, we're, we don't want to speculate on this anymore. I think we, I think we understand how fucked we are, right? It's an interesting phenomenon that I think hints at something that eventually I'm going to get back around to with science fiction, but also a huge one that both of you have mentioned is climate change, right? So climate change is, is any, not, not even like speculatively speaking, it's an immediately terrifying thing that if you think about it in any real way will, I mean, it, it will completely destroy your, not only your day, but like your, your, your future mindset. It, it is, it's one of those things where one of my favorite subreddits is called oddly terrifying. And it's like images that are like way scarier than you would expect them to be when you look at them more, you know, for like more than a second. And there was, there's somebody posted a picture of the current state of the Hoover Dam spillway the other day. And it was like, and I had that sense that like, there's gotta be a German word for this, but that sense of like this, this very deep awareness of doom 
or something because the water level was so low that all these things that were clearly the bottom of the reservoir were just sitting on sand. Um, and, you know, and of course, I look at headlines from the West Coast of the United States, you know, over where Jamie is, and the drought is just like such an incredible problem right now. And we are having fire warnings on the East Coast now all the time when we don't get rain for long enough. They're like, you know, like, be aware that there's an increased damage, you know, potential from fires. So like climate change is something that if, if you just look for more than two seconds at the world around you, you're bombarded by how scary it is. And yet there's, a, to my mind, proportional to how big of a problem it is, really a lack of compelling science fiction being written about it. There's a lot of fiction and, and not only science fiction books, but films obviously too. There's a lot of fiction that is written around the edges of it, right? Like I think something like Annihilation is a great way to talk somewhat about climate change from a kind of an oblique perspective. And a lot of Jeff Vandermeer's work is kind of another angle into that. Um, there's a lot of things that like kind of address it in, in very tangential ways, but like the days of, you know, Roland Emmerich disaster movies about climate change, like the, we're, we're not seeing those now because we get it right. Instead, we're getting Roland Emmerich making movies about the moon crashing into the planet. Right. Which is ridiculous. And still and no I one's seeing that either. That's true. <laughs> well, I think the disaster movie, the disaster science fiction movie is played out. People are, yeah. people don't want to go and watch a disaster. Life is a disaster right now. Yeah, I think it's become too real. And and I think, I, I guess that helps me, Jamie, get, get back to what I'm trying to say with this, which is that I think science fiction occupies this interesting place for us in that it's it tees up ideas. And the ones that stick the most for us are the ones that we have to internalize ourselves. They're the themes that don't slam us in the face, but that we have to kind of come to grips with, right? Um, and I think that's why a book like Brave New World is immortal. And I think that's why a film like Blade Runner is immortal is because you don't, you're not being told the entire time with exposition dumps what the problems are in the world, but you intuit them by the ways in which people act, by the ways in which they dress, the ways in which they interact with each other, by the types of technologies that would proliferate in a society like this and why people would need it. And then you start thinking, wow, people must be really lonely. Why are they lonely? Oh, oh, why, why is nobody outside anymore? Like, what? And you go down this place in your own you know, personal subjective viewing of the movie that then you can never get rid of just like a great poem, right? Like a great poem is only great once you've read it because you make it your own when you read it. So I think to me, science fiction has always functioned best when it's like that. And, and I, I actually, you know, I'm talking about Jeff Vandermeer and Annihilation and his Southern Reach trilogy and also his Born books. Like he's done a lot of great things about this. Um, you know, I'm using him as an example of a kind of an oblique way to look at something like climate change. But I actually think strange or weird fiction, the sort of thing that he writes, the sort of thing that Lovecraft wrote, to me is like the most evergreen way to talk speculatively about our future that we have because the types of metaphors in those books are not literal, right? It's not a one-to-one. -one. It's something that, it, so no matter what happens, it will feel timeless. And I think that's another reason why Blade Runner feels like it's still future looking to us, even though you're right, Jamie, technically it's the first film is in our past now. It feels very much like an imagined future because it feels it feels cyclical. It feels like something out of time. It feels like something that just lies ahead, regardless of when that ahead gets here. And so I think that great, great science fiction always has ellipses around it. I think great science fiction never answers questions. We've been through this a million times, right? It asks more than it answers. But the types of questions that great science fiction and great future-looking science fiction asks are the types of questions that I don't think we take the time to ask ourselves. And I think in asking those questions of us, it helps us to uncover deeper truths within ourselves than we would have had access to otherwise. 
So I think, you know, science fiction to me has always been and will always be my favorite genre other than horror. I think science fiction to me is just like, that's, that's just where my heart is. And I think it's because of that. It's because it, you know, we were talking before we started recording um, about childhood, right? And about how ever present we are and how time seems to stretch on forever and about how the world is so beautiful and new every day. And it's this really amazing thing, even though childhood is also terrifying and really, really, really hard. And it's easy to lose sight of that because we kind of forget about that. There is a real sense of optimism and openness in childhood. I think science fiction makes us children again, in a way, right? Like a great science fiction film, like Blade Runner 2049 to me is probably the best example of this I can think of. The first time I saw it, I had absolutely no idea how many hours had, I was like, I know this movie must be long because like I've been in this theater for a long time, but like it might've, I might've stayed overnight. I don't even know anymore because time ceased to matter in the face of this incredible imagined alternate reality. And it brings you back to that place you are as a child where like, you know, those sticks on the ground really are, you know, Corvette ships in Star Wars. Like those rocks that you're throwing around really are TIE fighters, right? The, where, where you're just, you just enter into this complete parallel universe. So yeah, I guess that's another long-winded way of saying that science fiction, I think, you know, makes me a child again and makes all of us children again, but in the best way possible because children are the ones with the imaginations in the first place. And I think something really important here as we talk about the future and how do we get to these futures? the future that we're in, the future in science fiction films, as fascinating as they are, I, you know, there's, again, we've talked about this on our show sometimes, like Star Trek, which is a very utopian, idealized future. Even within that idea, there's still problems and genocide and things that they encounter in other worlds or whatever. Um, but in a more realistic future, we're never, we're never going to be Star Trek. We're never going to, I mean... Maybe there'll be one world government at some point. I don't really think people in control of every country want to give up their own power and money to, to do that. I just don't see that happening. But who knows? Who knows? Um, but as I ask the question, I mean, in terms of science fiction asking questions, I think a big portion of that or a big part of that is, are we listening? Because that's what science fiction is asking us, are you listening to the story that we're telling you? I think our future, what's ahead of us in this world, are we listening to what's happening right now? And if we're not listening to what's happening right now, if we're tossing it aside, then our future is going to be dark. Um, and I think it gets back to, I mean, that's that's a universal thing. It's about communication. If we if we're not paying attention to ourselves, to our bodies, to our relationships, are we listening to our children or are we just talking at them? Do we see them as a person or do we see them as your object or your child or your son or your daughter or whatever? Do you see your spouse or your loved one as um, a full person? Are you listening to them? Are you, are you um, understanding what they're saying or are you just waiting to speak? And I think science fiction is asking us to listen, to not just, okay, yeah, it's, it's asking us to listen so that the world we create will be a world where people were listening to what it was telling us before. So it's, it's a world that's closer to, I don't know, maybe, yeah, maybe even a little bit closer to Star Trek than it is to 
movie like Elysium, where the rich live in this big, huge ship hovering above the earth because the earth is essentially inhabitable and only the poor live on earth. It's kind of like Blade Runner a little bit where everyone's off world, except for in Elysium, there is no off world. It's just off planet. And yeah, it's sprawling and beautiful, but really, is it? Is that like the natural world is gone and you're living on this ship and that's what the elite do. Um, we can sidestep that. We can not create that future by really, really listening. And science fiction's asking us to listen. Blade Runner is asking us to listen, to listen to each other, to listen to and and observe how we treat each other. I mean, I think that's what Blade Runner is at the gets at the at the heart of. How are we treating people? How are we treating people that aren't seen as people? And what does that say about our humanity? It's all interconnected. Again, everything is. The way we treat each other, the way we treat the earth, the way we treat people who are different or people who might not be technically people says more about us than it does about them. And science fiction is asking us to look at ourselves. And I feel like even between the three of us and maybe certainly our other podcasts, when we talk, when we have these discussions about these stories, what we're really doing is talking about how it's affected us, talking about how it's changed us. Why does Deckard stay with us? Why does Rachel stay with us? Why does Ellen Ripley stay with us? Um, what are they telling us about life and living it and doing the right thing and speaking up for people who, who don't have a voice? And again, I think really that's what's at the heart of science fiction. And if we're not listening, if we're not listening, we're headed for, I think it's McCarthy who wrote The Road. Uh, what's his name? Cormac, yeah, Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, yeah, like that's where we're headed if we're not listening. That's where we're headed if we're not listening to science fiction writers and um, scientists and economists and all of the people who know what they're doing. That's where we're headed. And science fiction, I think, is for me, it's the, mo the most important genre because it's asking us in a way that's not threatening to look at ourselves in a mirror. And that's an easier mirror to to digest than the actual mirror. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think a lot of what um, hits home most about let's do 2019 is it's not hard to recognize a future where um, cultures mesh, um, where there's certain dialogues that are, you know, the, the street dialogue and there's certain people in power and that power power is consolidated under, you know, a, a corporation or someone who's stepped in, who had the most resources to say, Hey, I'm going to do this now. I mean, I think we're seeing great examples of that present day. Um, and it's not, it's definitely not outside the realm of possibility just to see areas of society completely walled off. I mean, we see that all the time in any housing market, but I mean, just take a general example of say Manhattan. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know a whole lot of people that can afford to just simply work a normal, you know, even a, a white collar, good, you know, in quotes job and yet still afford to live in Manhattan. Instead, it's it's people with either you know families of of wealth or highly privileged, and slowly you know it's creeping up and slowly pushing out you know you know regular old Harlem isn't Harlem anymore, and most of those families that would be 
legacy families in, in those areas of housing don't live in Harlem anymore. They've been pushed up to, you know, go up to Hamilton Heights or go up even farther. And until you have an entire island that is so wealthy, well-to-do that, you know, the average person can't get into Manhattan except to, you know, do a vacation, stay at a hotel, but you're not going to afford to live there. And, you know, there's any metropolis now, you know, San Francisco or any area, it's just, it's, it's not crazy to think that soon that could be earth and that people with the resources can be not on earth. I mean, off world doesn't seem so crazy anymore that it, you know, than it did, you know, it seemed completely fantastical maybe when the movie first came out in, in the early eighties. Um, but there were some hints of it, you know, with, with, um, you know, the, the quote unquote star Wars and the cold war and all that. But now, I mean, it doesn't seem crazy at all that that's going to be something and, you know, that we would find a way to, you know, make other people or other, the, uh, the, them, you know, subrogated into another form of, you know, I don't want to trivialize it by calling it slavery, but it's not so crazy to think that we would generate or, um, I can't think of the term right now basically create a subservient biological being a replicant to do our bidding it just doesn't seem so crazy <laughs> the you know 2019 especially does not seem outside the bounds of the possible anymore it seems more like it's very probable that that is a future where we're headed so how do we find a way to get ready for that or how do we find a way to avoid it and i think the time to avoid it is becoming much thinner and harder than it is to just get ready for it what's interesting is that i think we see in times like these more of a push towards escapist futurism right like we see things trying to be more optimistic because it's almost like a counterbalance to how depressing the reality of our situation actually is and is becoming um but yeah, I, I don't know. I I, th I think it just kind of briefly going back to just science fiction and, and futurism as like a broad concept. To me, to me, I think a lot of really interesting looks at science fiction come from artists towards the end of their lives. I think a lot of the time we get these kind of like I, I think really Scott is a great example of this because you know love him or hate him or love him or hate his you know more recent work. Um, you know he's like clearly trying to get everything out while he can because he's getting older and he's desperately doing that right or i think of somebody you know like um like william gaddis the author he's one of my favorite authors incredibly interesting modernist um fiction uh and at the i was thinking of gaddis specifically because you were talking about cormac mccarthy jamie and i was thinking about and I, I adore his novels and um and he's sort of in the same sentence as william gaddis and that they're both kind of you know complex modern literary icons but gaddis's final book was a book called agape agape um, you know, so agape, like the divine love, right? And then agape, like yawning before the chasm of heaven, right? And uh, it's a it's a big title for a small book. It's like 120 something pages. And it's basically, and it's all in one continuous paragraph. It's just a rant by a dying old man. Hmm. Um, and it starts with this phrase. It's something like, um, I'm going to start this now because I don't have very much time and I'm not going to stop until I'm done. So you got to sit back and it just goes, there's like barely any punctuation. And it's like 120 pages of this. And the whole thing is about the history of the player piano because he was fascinated by the player piano because because the play, for those of you who don't know the history of early computing this is i'm 
I'm stopping myself before this becomes like the biggest fucking tangent I have ever gotten into on a podcast before. So I'm going to make it very brief because it doesn't need, this doesn't need to be about that. But early computing is fascinating because a lot of early, you know, addition machines were based on the same mechanical architecture as player pianos, right? So for those of you who don't know what a player piano piano is, which is understandable because it's already an archaic thing because ever since, you know, music became digitized, you didn't really quote unquote need them anymore. Player pianos were basically the 19th century's equivalent to the personal computer in the 20th century. They were punched out rolls of paper that you could put into a piano and actually through really complex mechanisms, that piano would translate those hole punches into music and you could have articulation, you can have dynamics, it could sound very different. And, and a lot of, you know, people made a living performing those punched out rolls that you could buy. So you could buy, you know, Ravel's own version of his own sonata, right? And, and then you could hear him playing it in your living room, which is pretty fucking mind blowing when you think about it. This is before there was recorded gramophone music. This is like, you know, incredible. And so Agape Agape looks at that uh, history as a kind of a, an allegory for where Gaddis was towards the end of his life and where technology was heading towards the end of his life and the things that he was afraid of and the things that he was, you know, in awe of. And, um, and I'm thinking of all this because I'm thinking like these tropes that we're talking about now that are really defining contemporary science fiction have been with us for longer than I think we realize. And what's interesting is that we never actually fucking listen to them, right? We never actually heed like any of these warnings. What happens is it starts a conversation, right? Like, so I, this is something else that I, while you guys were talking, I was kind of thinking of, I think science fiction is a little bit like the Bene Gesserit from Dune, right? Which of course is also futuristic science fiction, right? But the Bene Gesserit, right? They operate by planting seeds wherever they go usually those seeds take the form of myth right or idea so they'll go to a new planet and they'll they'll like set the way for for something to happen usually some sort of a political maneuver or some sort of a colonization but they'll like have basically a legend start so that things manifest by the time you know they need to and i think science fiction kind of operates a little bit like the benny Gesserit, right it's it's sort of like you know, you were mentioning earlier, Peter, about how, or, and Jamie too, about how, like, when you watch like a documentary, right, it's a very one-to-one -one thing where you basically are told what is happening and why it is scary, right? I say that as somebody who's fucking obsessed with documentaries, I'm not shitting on that art form whatsoever, but that's, that's the difference, right? Science fiction, when it works well, gives somebody something to think about, and then the more they think about it, the more they want to talk about it, and then you know, start a podcast, for example, and keep talking about it and then have people write in from the podcast. And then before you know it, you are talking about themes like climate change or social and socioeconomic instability, political division, right? You're talking about these themes that are actual, you know, manifestations in the world that we inhabit, but you're talking about them because you kind of arrived there yourself because of an idea that was implanted in you 30 years ago when you watched a movie for the first time. Um, so... <laughs> I have no idea where that point's going, other than to say that science fiction moves within us in very fascinating ways. And I think, and so the reason why I think Gaddis and Ridley Scott are interesting case studies in that is you see where people are towards the end when what was once this very kind of subtle warning, right? Like a little beacon that was put out becomes urgent because they're realizing the finitude of their own time. And they're like, you need to like actually listen to what I'm saying because I don't have very much time left. So yeah, that's, that's another kind of window, I think, into this conversation. That brings me just, quickly uh, right to you know the end of 2019 there's not much time the replicants are coming back to their maker to essentially say look what you did and how you treated us and how you made us is not fair knock it off 
Or at least if you're not going to knock it off, at least know by looking in my eyes and me gouging out your eyes what it is you've done. And if you continue to do this, it's on you now because here I am, here we are as, you know, basically what you've created, knocking on your door, coming into your bedroom, you're in your pajamas, listen. And if you're not going to listen, then I'm going to take, you know, essentially one of your disciples, um, someone who's lost his way and is essentially hopeless and has given up, and I'm going to make him listen. And if I can't make either of those two people listen, then you're all done. And so I don't know, whatever, you know, however you just described that all, I think that's exactly at least some of the points and why 2019 resonates, because it's just if, if you're going to treat people this way, if you're going to cut yourself off and decide not to listen to your own selves, then there's nothing else. There's nothing we can do. So here's, you know, us sacrificing our lives, laying it down on the line um, to try and wake you up. And I think what's so great about 2019 is it's not a desperate um, dead end. It's it's Deckard does wake up. The one guy who you thought would never wake up actually says, oh, I'm going to try something else. And we find out at least for a period of time, if only for a minute. And it's we've talked a lot about this, you know, in the green room before the episode, how time dilates. I'd like to think, you know, between 2019 and 2049, there was a moment at least in that where it did dilate for a moment for both Deckard and Rachel. And I think that's what those movies, I don't know. It, it sounds lame, but that's it, kind of what those movies are about. They got that moment time dilated. And now after it's dilated and you're kind of thrown back into reality, it turns to 2049. Um, so anyways, yeah, that's kind of what jumped into my head after what you were talking about, Patrick, but I think Jamie, you were going to, comment on something too. No, well, I was just going to follow what you're saying, sort of what both of you are saying. And I'm just talking about the replicants and the idea of listening to, to what Batty was saying to Tyrell. Um, essentially what you said, like, you know, this isn't fair. Life isn't fair. And when you reach 2049, there is, there is a difference. The replicants are seemingly treated a little bit better. Um, I mean, there's a difference, but there isn't. The, the ones who have open-ended lifespan are considered a threat, and they need to be taken in for whatever reason. They don't, they don't trust them. Um, but if you look at Kay's life, even though, arg arguably or not, he doesn't have much of a life, but he has a place to live. He has a companion, which they it seems like they provide him with. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe he had it. Maybe he purchased that. I mean, if he had to purchase her emanator maybe had to purchase her in general i don't know but they seem as a species more treated better in 2049 just a little bit or given some agency and maybe it was wallace saying we can't do that again we can't treat these people and like you know kick them off the planet and say you're not allowed we we have to if we're going to survive this this you know drought this famine what we're living in we're going to need them here with us to do it and so almost it, make, it reminds me a little bit of what david says in prometheus when he's putting on a helmet and holloway says 
well, what are you doing there? He goes, they made me like you to make you feel better. And in 20, in the Blade Runner universe, certainly in 2049, I feel like they realized, okay, we can't treat, because no one, no one's going to know if K is a human or not. If he's, say K does something that he's not supposed to do and some cops come over and beat him up. But it's okay because he's a, a replicant. But no one on the street's going to know if he's a replicant. So it might, the optics will be bad. So they had to set up a new system by which they care for these replicants. They give them a home. They give them a life. It's just better for them in some ways. It's not, but it is. It's a better way to treat them than 2019. So in some ways, they learned their lesson from the past a little bit. Like, okay, we need to be more human or humanistic in the way we approach these things. Yes, they're under our control and they are they are created to obey, um, but let's treat them with some kind of dignity, with some kind of respect, and they do. Um, and I, I don't know how much that's proliferated within the world of 2049. I don't know how much dignity there is to go around. I mean, we see Mariette and her sisters, her replicant sisters, you know, at the sex club, they seem like, replicants seem like they're just kind of in society, walking around doing what they want, which is very different than 2019, where any replicant caught is like, not, you, you just, you just, not only can you not be here, we have to kill you um, at the same time. So I do feel like 2049 was someone listening on some level. At the same time, that future was even bleaker. There was a sense of hopefulness. We've talked about this many times in 2019. There's a sense of nostalgia. Now, maybe that's because it was made in the 80s and all of us were either born or raised in the 80s or some, all of us were raised in the 80s to some degree for a little bit. Um, and so maybe that's the nostalgia that we see, but there is this comfort to the original film. Um, and there's a lack of comfort to 2049. But I feel like, again, I, I hope I'm not rambling too much. I feel like we're kind of all over tonight, but that's okay. Um, I feel like 2049's future was certainly a future that realized we have to listen to what these people are saying. Like with Wallace, the they they only you know solved the famine issue because they Wallace was like, you need to listen to me, or you're going to die of starvation. And they did. So progress was made in some ways, some really, really good ways. Um, but then in some other ways, it wasn't and things went backwards. Um, so to the point of listening, um, was Tyrell listening? Was the government listening? They weren't. And things collapsed. And then 2049 was a little bit of a flip on that. Like, okay, things are a little bit better. We can kind of get to know these replicants more as autonomous beings more than just washing machines and i don't know where i was going with that but i felt like i know i was going with that so i'll just leave it there well i really like how you how you talked about that how 2019 um despite being a, a you know just visually darker movie and i think there's some darker themes in that it ends up a little more hopeful mm -hmm. and yeah 2049 ends in, in hope in, in the hand against the glass and and deckard coming um to meeting his 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 daughter um, 
but I like how your theme, and this makes me seem like a weird survivalist, which makes sense because we record these when I'm in my basement. <laughs> um, but it, it makes me think about how, yes, they were listening, but what were they listening to? And then yes. how did people use it? And that that rings true today too with with data mining, biometric data, all that kind of stuff where, yeah, they t- began treating or finding ways to make replicants more complicit a lot of ways i think you know we are all sort of becoming a little more complicit with you know things like joy things like social media things to distract us or otherwise attempt to make us feel like we're less alone but then relating it to today's world i mean you find that although there's a boom in in digital technology like zoom and other ways that we're now able to communicate and see each other still there's an uptick in depression. There's an uptick in people feeling more lonely now than ever because all of their interactions are this. There's no, I'm going to go meet you somewhere and we're going to sit across from a table. We're going to be able to reach out, touch each other's hand when it's an appropriate moment or each other's shoulder or give a hug for real. And I think, you know, Jamie, something you you said earlier about, you know, having a spouse that you don't want to talk to or or children you perhaps don't want to deal with. You know, one of the big lessons I think um, that science fiction teaches us is that, you know, daily life is hard and attempts to avoid that or avoid the interactions we don't want um, are what leads us to these sort of speculative futures. I mean, someone like Joy was specifically designed so during the day, Um, you know, and perhaps some relationships are like this. You don't realize that when you're away at work, your, your kids are living a life when you're away, um, you know, your spouse is working and dealing with their own stress or dealing with their own life. But when you don't see them, you don't have to deal with it. And joy is similar to that, to where when Kay's out doing his work, she can, she's off. You absolutely don't have to deal with what she's dealing with during the day, because during the day, if you're not around, you're not dealing with her at all. And I think that's a a odd way to live. And a lot of what our technology is driving us to is when you have people off and you can turn them on at your convenience, you can turn on the news at your convenience, you can turn on, you know, whatever social um, justice campaign. And I don't mean that in any derogatory sense, but you don't have to listen to it during the day. It's not part of most of our lives. And I think that's not necessarily a good thing. And when you, you know, I think a lot of the time in Blade Runner goes to, if you don't have to deal with the replicants off world, you don't have to deal with the consequences of your actions if you don't have to deal with in some ways if k doesn't have to deal with the fact that he's being um you know mistreated or otherwise treated as a less than and he doesn't realize that there's a a a, a movement underground phrasia um he doesn't have to deal with it he doesn't have to deal with figuring out whatever it's easy for him to continue on with his life and i think waking up from those things like Kay does again and what's probably my favorite scene in the in the breakdown at Dr. Staline's office or I don't her office but her her work her her life her home whatever you want to call her bubble um when he has that just work work from home reality that's yeah exactly which again it's another thing that hits home even closer now but you know his total breakdown of just like ah 
you know, constant K finally breaking down. It's sort of like, if we don't let ourselves do that today, you know, what's, what are we getting ourselves into and what are we allowing to help happen around us? And I'm just as guilty of it all of it. That's not me to say, Oh, I'm opening myself up to every life's pain at every minute or life's problems or trying to attempt to fix anything at every minute of my day. But I don't know. It's why the movies hit, And I think it's, it's part of the futurism that Blade Runner drives home. And again, it's, it's such a beautiful piece of art because I don't just two years ago, we weren't talking about it in the context of isolationism with technology. We weren't talking about Blade Runner 2049 in the sense of a pandemic, but yet we were still having these conversations and now it adapts to that. So I, I think that's another thing about futurism is, is that it's, it's an adaptable science and it's trying to figure out what, how, how can we adapt to our future? again. So that's my next rant. You know, Peter, it's really interesting. You're talking about the ways in which, for example, all the, all of this like zoom interaction is changing us. Cause there's actually a lot of studies that show that psychologically humans are really bad at envisioning each other out when we're unseen from one another. And so what, what we end up doing with all these facsimiles of each other in these digital spaces is, and this, this is just like a natural human thing is we see each other as fully formed three-dimensional people while we're interacting. And then it's like that person doesn't exist anymore when the screen comes off until you like interact with them again. You might think throughout the day, like, oh, I wonder what Peter's doing. I wonder what Jamie's doing. But you're not like envisioning that in a real, you know, 3D environment. And so what happens when we do all of this virtual interaction all the time is it actually changes the ways in which we perceive each other. And so I agree. 2049 hits those themes in a really direct way. I want to go back for a moment to the whole Nexus 9 thing. I think that's a really interesting reading of it. Jamie and Peter that you guys are both espousing in terms of being a little more optimistic about that. Maybe they did heed the warning. Um, I hadn't really considered that before. Honestly, I think it, I think it definitely works with that reading. Um, for me, I, I always think of Nexus nines as being, as being really sad because they are given all of these appearances of, of freedom and free will, but they're really actually like really tightly constricted, right? Like totally. Right. And if they don't pass the baseline test, you know, they're just, and I, I, I feel like we should, I don't like the, you know, cancel culture thing. Right. But I, I think we should cancel the term retirement for killing replicants. Cause I feel like that's like, it's taking the euphemism that, that the police are using. Like it's fucking killing. Like, like they get killed when they fail their baseline test. Right. Um, and similarly, like the, the reason why they're afforded all these luxury in the, in the first place, and you both alluded to this is because of the amount of behavioral inhibitors that they're subjected to and the amount of tightly controlled stuff that goes on around them. And I think what we're seeing in 2049, you could look at as maybe if you're, if you're in a good mood as maybe being somebody was listening, but on, on a bad day to me, it really feels like things have become, have been allowed to become banal again, because it's been 13 years since the Nexus 9s were introduced. And so what we're seeing is actually a society that's just sort of used to having these machines walking around, you know, as from their viewpoint. Um, and, you know, but it's interesting though, I mean, you, you, you are right, regardless of whether or not it's, you know, casual or, or not, the ways in which replicants are treated are more directly, I think, applicable to the ways in which I mean, you know, minorities in general, but but people are treated in in the world that we actually recognize. The ways in which racism, as a as a, you know, speciesism in terms of replicants, is like both explicit and implicit. You know, the ways in which people are otherized, like those are things that, that 
we see in our world all the time if we look for it enough. And I feel like in the world of Blade Runner 2049, you, you do see it all the time too. Whereas in 2019, you're absolutely right. It's not just like, you know, speciesism. It's, it's like just fucking straight up, just kill any replicant that has escaped, right? Um, so that is an interesting difference between the two. And I don't know what that says about the society other than I think something that, you know, maybe as we come towards closing this, you know, Jamie, in your notes, you hinted at this too for this episode, the role that capitalism plays in all of this in the ways in which the structures that we create for ourselves to be able to get to the future end up creating futures of their own that we might not be thrilled about. So I think 2049 is an interesting case study in this, right? Because it really is in one very large way, the study of this the story of capitalism, right? It's a story of, as Jamie was saying earlier, right? Wallace with this protein farm, you buying up the Tyrell, what remains of the corporation and creating this new super capitalist, you know, mini society of his own. That is just this huge economic force and getting unregulated, unbridled power in a way that obviously speaks to anybody who's watching what fucking Elon Musk is doing with Twitter right now. Like it's, it's, it's kind of frightening what enough money can allow you to get away with. Right. Um, and I think that what we see in 2049 is, is what happens when you have things that are recognizably human that are subject to forces of capitalism that they can then get away with in a really direct way, which is is happening here. And we talk about this, all, Jamie likes to bring up the DuPont example is a great one, right? There's, there's examples happening every day. Groundwater is another one where you have like actual disasters happening because of unregulated capitalism and it gets swept under the rug because the people, you know, at work, for example, I, you know, I work with, um, like we have legal partners in, uh, in communities around the Orinoco River Basin in South America, right? And they are representing these tribal fishing communities. No, they're not tribal, they're just fishing communities along the river who uh, are just, just, just displaced by huge companies that just want to create, for example, a palm oil plantation. And they'll just like spray the area with insecticide, kill the fishery, and then people will have to leave the land. And then they just, what happens is because it was ancestral land, there's no deed for it. So there's no actual legal ground in you know court to get the land back. So we work with these legal partners to represent these people to try to find legal frameworks to be able to reclaim their land. So like, that's a great example of something that's happening right now where people, I mean, talk about dehumanizing somebody, just fucking take their house from them and get away with it because that's the system that we have in place. And that is on the scale of what can happen relatively minor because those people are at least still alive. But every day we have actual disasters happen all over the world, um, you know, from the scale of climate change to small things like industrial spills that actually result in, in dismemberment and death and, and companies get away with it. In 2049, it's an interesting window into what that looks like with science fiction because we're seeing, um, you know, like, I mean, we are viscerally uncomfortable with what happens, for example, to the newborn, you know, the angel replicant that comes out and gets sliced open by, by, Zan, by uh, Neander, <laughs> said Xander, Xander Wallace. Uh, like that, that is deeply troubling to anybody watching it. And we think like, for a moment, we think, oh, at least it doesn't happen in our world. But it fucking happens in our world every day. We just don't always see it. So science fiction, I think, also gives us a window into the current reality to be able to look things in the eye that aren't really documented enough for us to see. And uh, and yeah, so another, another long-winded answer and a night of long-winded answers. But I think there's a reason why they're long-winded. It's because we have to grope our ways through these, these topics. And 2049 is a great way to get a more literal view, I think, into the ways in which we dehumanize each other and the ways in which capitalism facilitates and demands that, I think. And to your point, uh, and this will, might be my last 
bit on this for this episode for sure, but in terms of capitalism and unregulated capitalism and unbridled capitalism, which I think America is in the throes of, part of the great questions of science fiction, certainly of Blade Runner, is the question of empathy and what does it mean to lose our empathy? What does it make us to lose our empathy? Now, as a world culture, we've seen that before. We've seen the Holocaust. We've seen American slavery, world slavery. I mean, it's still the sex tra trafficking that happens today. Um, that is happening because people see other people as product and not people. And even more granular than that is when algorithms take over, and algorithms aren't empathetic, algorithms don't care. Um, and then you have these people like, oh, they're, they're their own Wallace or Tyrell in their own way, like Zuckerberg, or for instance, you have even streaming services using algorithms to tell them what's going to survive the cut and what isn't. How many people are watching? It's all data-based. Everything's data-based. Even corporations like Starbucks, it's about the data, it's about the numbers. But what they're really seeing what they're really seeing are the the product of human effort. The people working in their stores or people working in their crops in South America or all over the world, the people um, putting stuff on their shelves. But when the big corporate people eventually see the data and see the numbers, that's all it is. It's, it's data. And what algorithms do is just crunch the data to say, well, this is working and this isn't. And then decisions are made based off that data. Decisions for real, alive, walking, breathing, talking, human beings, those decisions for those human beings is made by algorithms and that data and what that, how that data looks to white collar people working in an office, living in a, a, a house no one else could afford in the world, um, crunching that data. And to me, that's when science fiction is the scariest. It's in Blade Runner. It's, there's many elements of that in alien the alien series and all over i mean even in a movie we've discussed before like gattaca it was about the data what what does the data say about you and i feel like with blade runner um and certainly with 2049 it does look a little bit better but to your point patrick it's more insidious honestly and much like the ss where they hired jews to essentially kill other jews or to wrangle them during the Holocaust in 2049, they built replicants to take, to kill other replicants because we don't, we, we don't need to do this. You need to report back to us, but we don't need to do this. But that's an arm of a lack of empathy. It, that's where it stemmed from. Like, we don't want to deal with it. What does the information say? What does the information on the screen tell us about K as opposed to, well, why don't you just talk to K and see what's up with him? They don't want to do that. The screen's saying that there's an anomaly and this is dangerous. So we might need to get rid of him as opposed to, well, why don't you gauge his humanity? And for me, these discussions will always be so important because I feel like as we talk about futurism and the scary arm of futurism, the conversation really is the, the pulling away of empathy. Um, for our fellow man and not just you and me because i think people like you and me or us three here and all of our friends and people that we know we have we're not in a place where we can i mean certainly on our own we could you know we could blow each other off we could not treat each other well but we're not in a place of control 
where we could really affect the lives of other people based off our decisions. Um, you and all of us here have to get up. We either have to go to work. We have to see people. We have to interact with people. That's kind of what we do, even if it's on Zoom. I mean, I work from home too, and most of my interaction with my company comes from Zoom. I get it. But I think the danger, the warning signs here as we talk about futurism is really this this march towards a complete loss of empathy and not just empathy for each other. That's huge. Empathy for the world we live in, empathy for the the climate that we live in, not caring because a melting ice cap doesn't matter for me living in Midwest Midwest America. A melting ice cap doesn't matter because I live in the Baltic region, um, you know, on, on another continent. But if we lose empathy for this planet, this planet will eat us. It's already starting to do that. And I think Blade Runner for me is the lesson here is not just who we are as humans and those really important topics that we've always had. It's more than that. It's we cannot lose our empathy. We cannot lose our real live empathy for everything and everyone around us because we are all connected. Listening to, to both of you in sort of our closing the statements for tonight. I, I think I'm, I keep getting drawn back to Patrick's, I think, very poignant um, discussion on the, the player piano. And I think a lot about and have thought a lot about as a, as a music fan of friends who perform music, Patrick, you being one of them too. I, I always think about how, you know, the ability to play or perform your craft in front of a live audience and how every performance is always going to be a little bit different based on a large part of adapting to that, to that audience. Um, in the player piano scenario, in a Blade Runner, um, you know, interlinked scenario, there's certain holes there's certain notes that are going to be played and they have to be or have been programmed to play in the same way at every instance and that in and of itself is an amazing feat to always hit the note or to say the correct thing at the exact moment you're supposed to but um in that you lose that ability um that when you have let's say in a live scenario either performing your singing or performing as part of an orchestra or a band um, and you have a crowd react. And in that moment, your own adrenaline take hold, your own emotions take hold and you hit that chord harder, softer, you fudge it, you hit the note next to it. Um, there's something about that that then conveys or otherwise provides an interaction um, with each other that you're not going to get again. You're you're not going to get that same performance no matter what because of the reaction. And where I'm going with that then is um, in a scenario like Blade Runner, more specifically 2049, when there's been um, a nefarious system of listening, a nefarious way of, of figuring out ways to placate or otherwise do something in a perfect way where people aren't going to have that outside influence affect the performance 
or otherwise affect the, I don't know, the desire to continue performing in a certain way. Um, I, I, there's a lot lost there. I think that 2049 shows um, a real life example in the legal profession is during the pandemic um, or prior to pandemic, there would be things like um, certain days of a month where you'd have um, what's often called like case management conference when you just have to show up to the court, tell, tell them what a, what's going on, give them a status report on your case. And oftentimes it's it's what would be conferred as or referred to as like a cattle call. So be a hundred attorneys showing up in one courtroom, having to stand in line and wait to just get in front of a judge to say, hey, we'll tell you more stuff in another 90 days. Um, and it seemed like a giant waste of time at the time. But what it was, was an opportunity for you to stand in line with an attorney from another firm from across town or, you know, from across the street even and you're having an interaction, you're sitting in line and you're, oh, what have you been doing recently? And you talk either about your kids, you talk about um, just life in general. Um, and then during the pandemic, you bring that to Zoom and all of a sudden people aren't seeing each other anymore. And I think there's been a definite, even just in my personal experience and just in general, there's articles about this too, similar to what Patrick was talking about, about a, a, an increase in hostility, an increase in an ability to see someone as an enemy when typically they're just trying to do their same job. Um, so again, I, I think in the last two years and more recently even, you know, the story I take away from 2049, again, is, is exactly to what Jamie, um, one of his big, you know, personal tent poles of 2049 is that empathy it's it's you take that away and that's the easiest time to start those breakdowns it's the easiest way to start getting to a point where we can see a future like 2049 uh see a future where we're, we're treating people as others and again you know this is on par with this episode a bit of a rambling but i i, I just really think that that's sort of the futurism and the profit, what would it be? The profitization, uh, the prophesizing. I'm trying to figure out how to describe it, but that to me right now is my 2049. That's sort of what today, if I watch it most recently, I'm walking away with a feeling of we're getting there because of the way we're starting to treat each other one because of the pandemic and two just because again also what you guys were talking about <laughs> and just this general sense of capitalism beats all and we're all becoming sort of those ones and zeros and not the people behind um the face and i i think that's a lot of what um you know 2049 hits on and you know at, again i'm just talking here because i'm trying to figure out in my own way how it changed for myself and again, that's why I love doing this with you guys. This is why it's so fun to do this is all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, 2049 has completely shifted in what, um, in what it sort of means to me today. And I think we've hit on a lot of that today. So again, it's been fun. I'm just going to end on an unrelated note in that any fan of Shoulder of Orion who enjoyed the audio drama Gethsemane 
should run over to the sister program of Perfect Organism, listen to the new audio drama over there, which I recently did. And it's fantastic and super fun. And so just that's just my plug as a, a fan of Perfect Organism and in no way, you know, part of that behind the scenes. It's just, it's, it's really fun. So anyone who enjoyed the audio drama on Shoulder Variety needs to go over and check out the new one. The score is fantastic. The soundscape is amazing. The voice actors do a great job. So just great job, guys. Everyone go check that out. The end. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. That, that, that's fun. really sweet. Yeah, this, that, that is Alien yeah, Abandoned, written by, directed by, sound designed by Jamie Prater. Uh, I did the score for it. And, and there's an amazing voice cast, including one of our other contributing hosts, Micah. Who shows up kind of subtly throughout, um, but that that was that's one of our best things we've done yet. And and I think so. So first off, thank you for saying that, and 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 thank you also to our listeners for being patient as we had to kind of switch gears a little bit recently uh, with Alien Day coming up. We really like you stuck by us. We didn't drop patrons or anything. We, hopefully, you still enjoyed the content that we put out for for Patreon during it. Um, but but you know we 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 know that you understand what we're doing in a way that's very deep and very true. And that, you know, you're not just uh, fly by the seat of your pants fans. You're really here with us at the heart of this thing. So so thank you for sticking by us. And I just want to say, as we, as we bring this home, you know, we're, we're teeing up in a really nice way, I think, what we're doing next, which is going to be a series of episodes about artificial intelligence and the ways in which artificial intelligence have appeared in film and in our lives. And I think what's interesting about what you're saying, Peter, is uh, like so many things, it, it it's the way of entropy like the the death of the universe is 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 entropy right it's not cataclysm it's not terminator 2 and skynet going active it's not these you know these huge apocalyptic visions it's the banality of the end of things due to complexity that's what i think really is so hard to talk about and what we're seeing in real time is exactly what both of you have been referencing so eloquently and frequently throughout this episode which is just the algorithmic slow destruction of our discourse and our abilities to see each other as human so as long as we wrestle with questions of what it is to be human and what it is to see the humanity in each other we will always be talking about these films in in very deep and evergreen ways and i think that um it's just an interesting thing to grapple with as creative people ourselves, as people who work within this paradigm, whether it be with podcasting or as Jamie does with writing and, you know, as, as Peter does with his own conversations that he has with friends and family. Like, I mean, this is something that uh, will always be dealt with, but really wrestled with, because how do you talk about the way that things end by being boring? Like, how do you talk about the ways in which things end by becoming pedestrian and becoming predictable? And when we become desensitized, to change because the rate has become so quick that we can't even see it anymore. What happens when we reach that tipping point, right? I mean, I remember even just 10 years ago talking about actually the, the funny thing is, um, you know, like the, so I, I mentioned Ray Kurzweil in the beginning. He's one of a number of people who believe that 2049, the year 2049 is the year at which we will become indistinguishable from our machines. And we will essentially become functionally immortal because of that. And so he's one of many people who's like taking all these vitamin supplements and doing all these life extension, you know, things to try to make it to 2049. So when actually when Blade Runner 2049 was announced, I remember thinking, oh, that's surely a reference to the singularity thing that everybody's talking about. Um, but in reality, it wasn't. That was just the own timeline of the film. Um, but I think what what's interesting is ten years ago, I, I thought of this this you know this I, this idea of this the singularity moment as something really fundamentally optimistic. Like as long as we can make it to that year, like we'll never have to say goodbye again. Like we'll live forever. Um, 
but now seeing the way technology has adapted, even just in the last 10 years, I, I find it like immensely frightening now in, in a really different way because technology is not here to help us. Like technology does not see us or care about us. Technology, when it is weaponized as an arm of capitalism, is something that will that will eat us from the inside out. And we will, you know, in our own way become the heat death of the universe, but just through the entropy of our algorithms rather than the entropy of our photons. So that's uh my, my closing thoughts. And, and thank you again for sticking by us, everybody. Jamie, do you want to bring us home? Wonderfully said, both of you. I, I This was a really great discussion. I know it kind of went all over. Um, it's great to be back here on the show. I am also looking forward to our series on AI. This is something Patrick and I have been discussing for probably two years, at yeah, least. It's been two years. Um, and we're excited to launch into that and then have that be a springboard to the 40th anniversary celebration of Blade Runner. So thanks everyone for listening. Thank you to our patrons. Thank you for being patient. And we will talk to you soon. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.